Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life, and we hope you'll join us for the journey. It is my great pleasure to welcome onto the podcast this week two giants of the publishing industry, Liz Calder and Alexandra Pringle. Liz was one of the founding directors of Bloomsbury and was its editor-in-chief from 1987 to the year 2000, after which she passed the baton on to Alexandra, who served in the role until 2020. Between them, they have published Nobel Prize, Booker Prize and Women's Prize winners and have published household names such as Margaret Atwood, Jeanette Winterson, Michael Ondaatje, Susanna Clark, Camilla Shamsi and Madeline Miller. This is not to mention their many achievements outside of Bloomsbury and in the wider publishing industry. Together, they have edited the Bloomsbury 35 Anthology, a celebration of the now much-loved and admired publisher, which started life in 1986 in a small office above a Chinese restaurant in Putney. To flick through its pages is to meet some of the most exciting voices in fiction writing from across the world, and is a testament to the brilliant work Bloomsbury has and continues to do. Liz and Alexandra, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thank you. So um, on Mostly Books Meets, we love to, you know, explore our guests' sort of reading history, you know, what their history and where their love of reading the written word books came from. Um, starting um, with you, Liz, am I right in saying you, you grew up in New Zealand? Is that correct? Yes, uh, from the age of 11, uh, my parents emigrated from London in 1949 and I was 11, and we went and uh, my father became a farmer. Ah. So that was, uh, that was the point of the exercise, but it was, it was an unforgettable experience. Yes, I imagine. And, and was it, you know, was it before moving to New Zealand that you got into to reading, or is that something you discovered sort of while you were there? No, my mother was an absolutely avid reader, a love, great lover of books, and the most, what I can remember most clearly was uh, I had a, a bad case of tonsillitis when I was about six, and I was in hospital about uh, for it. And she came into the hospital with a great suitcase, absolutely packed with books. I couldn't believe it. In fact, I, I think I thought they were all new books, but they weren't. They were all books she brought from home. Oh. Anyway, one of them she started reading to me. And that was the, the book I, I first remember reading myself because she started reading it out loud and I was so grabbed and, and, and captured by it that I took the book from her quite firmly and started <laughs> reading it myself. And that was Anne of Green Gables by Ella Montgomery, which is, of course, loved by very, very many. Mm. In terms of... um. A childhood book that's you know well loved and well remembered. Anne of Green Gables has come up a lot on the yeah. podcast, as you uh, know, sort of an yeah. initial experience of yeah. um, of, of reading. So a very strong character. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. And um, I must confess, shamefully, it's not it's not one I've read myself. But I'm right; it's quite a rural setting, isn't it, in Anne of Green Gables? And did that you know you you said you came across that when you were six? Did that sort of also have extra significance when you were when you moved to New Zealand because I presume if farming was was the reason yes. for it didn't really because uh, the farm we had a sheep farm and mm. we weren't living in a village whereas Anne was living in a small village of the small village of Avon right and so village life was much more part of her world than, than yes my, yeah and, and moving over to you, Alexandra, where did you grow up and where did your sort of love of the, the written word stem from? So I was um, I was born in a tiny cottage in Chelsea in 1953. And um, it was uh, in those days, it was a working class street. It had no bathroom. It had a lavatory in the garden in the shed. Right. And it was Chelsea was a very different place. 
And I was very resistant uh, to learning to read or anything really very much, but particularly reading. And I remember my mother desperately trying to get me to read and me saying, I don't want to learn. And then, <laughs> and then, but the minute it happened, you know, when I was about six or something, it was like this extraordinary door opening. Mm. The Actually, the first book I remember reading was The Hell of Reading Janet and John, which I think is why I was taking so long to read it, <laughs> about the most boring book ever. But the first, um, a massively important book to me, I used to go to Chelsea Library and mm. I just read my way through. And you, in that way that libraries, you just pick up books, you don't know mm. what you're what you're reading. And I picked up a book called The Turf Cutter's Donkey by Patricia Lynch. And I found out later it was illustrated by Jack Yates, which is rather amazing. And it was first published in the 1930s. And I don't know what it was that attracted me to it. And I became so obsessed. I read, she wrote about 30 something Turf Cutter's Donkey books. They was, and they were leprechauns and magic. And I realized that um, my publishing, I have a sort of strand of magic publishing, like Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell okay, yes, and yes. Madeline Miller and so on. And I think that all comes from those, you know, those early books. I mean, obviously C.S. Lewis, but that the Irish books were wonderful and I desperately wanted to be Irish. And I found out later that she was a, an amazing woman and a, a staunch Republican and um, was sent by Sylvia Pankhurst to report on the Easter Risings in 1960. Oh, wow, okay. She's obviously an amazing woman, but I, obviously I didn't know that then. <laughs> no, no, I find with, um, you know, uh, the wonderful thing about those books that really speak to you when you're a, a child is it's, uh, it's always an ongoing relationship with them, you know, as you grow up and maybe you learn more about the, the you know, the writer's private life or who they were or, the, mm. you know, their politics, mm. you realise that you sort of grow with them you know, even if they're, you know, a writer from the past, you know, that relationship never ends, really, mm. um, that when you learn about the various different aspects of who they uh, of who they were. The, um, the, the only other person I've ever met who've, who's read Patricia Lynch is, is the novelist Esther Freud, who read her when she was growing up because her mm. mother was Irish. So uh, that, that's a bond we always had. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, 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 yes. So you found then that, you know, as a uh, as a name isn't as sort of well known as other, you know, for in terms of people's sort of childhood yeah. reading or yeah, maybe more so in more so in Ireland or yes, or, yes, yeah, yes, okay, she's yeah, very yeah. famous there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, a really fascinating, fascinating woman. Uh, so you, uh, Alexandra, initially had a sort of a bumpy start with reading. You know, you were sort of a bit resistant to it. I know, yes, yeah, certainly I had a, a very similar experience as well. And uh, Liz, you had this, uh, you know, this uh, sort of sickbed experience, it sounds like, where, you know, Anne of Green Gables really caught your attention. Uh, Liz, was this interesting reading? Did it continue on into your into your teenage years? I know some people, interestingly, have a bit of a lull in their teenage years and sort of rediscover it. What, what, what was the case for you? Yes, I would say I had a bit of a lull. Uh, other things seemed to caught my interest, uh, and I did during my school years. I really can't remember doing a lot of actual reading of books. Mm. Of course, we you know studied books, and uh, but my life was very uh, full of other activities. Um, mm. Certainly, I did read avidly every book about riding ponies that I could come across. And of course, there were dozens and dozens and dozens of them, the Pulling Thompson sisters in particular, but they all seemed to, I mean, the whole business of going to New Zealand, from my personal point of view, was that I had been promised a pony when we got there. And right. <laughs> <laughs> so after, you know, a, a long voyage and, and a lot of uh, waiting around to find a final resting place where, where my parents would uh, be on this farm. And, and then this long-awaited pony came. And uh, so I was busy riding as well as reading pony books. But, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, my, my English teachers, those, those who were inspiring, led me into all kinds of, of reading of, of mm. you know, the, the classics, Jane Eyre and so on. 
but but I say I would say reading as such took a bit of a backseat until really until I was through university because you have to do so much reading anyway. Yes, studying um, that actually you know you're doing set books and and while. I really loved doing all of that and was very interested in in reading the uh, the fiction of the early 20th century um you know the Virginia Woolfs etc mm. yes i suppose um reading as i know it now now of course it's different and reading i i do read a great deal and i'm constantly reading new books coming out as well as catching up with old ones yes but uh, you know sometimes life took over yes and I, I did a little less reading during those early teenage years yes it's, it's something we find certainly in the stores that you know people it's an ongoing relationship with reading you know the classic one is students saying because they have to read so much for university <laughs> Is they'll yeah. say to us, "I can't wait to finish university so I can read, you read know, for read for enjoyment." Yes, yeah. exactly. Yes, and you know that you can you can absolutely enjoy what you're you're reading at university yeah. because it's the moment you have to read it. I feel there's a there, there can be not always, but an element of the sort of enjoyment can fall away. I suppose maybe that's you're not discovering it for yourself. You've been you know told yeah. to you know read this, you know, see what you think. So that's 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 a common one as well. Or, you know, we we also have, you know, people saying uh, sometimes uh, parents as well saying, you know, while the kids are young or, you know, that their main reading is reading, you know, for the child. But then they sort of, you know, rediscover it uh, later yeah. on as well. How about you, uh, Alexandra? What was your teenage years sort of relationship with reading like? It was a completely passionate relationship. Oh, um, okay. It was uh, it was sort of all I did. And two things. One was my mother was very strict and so she didn't let me go out very much. And I was very happy at home, so I didn't mind. And I had two brothers and, you know, family life was very jolly. But um, also when I was about 11, my father was a school teacher. He was an English teacher. My mother was also a teacher and a very passionate reader. And my father gave me Jane Austen to read when I was 11 and Thomas Hardy, the sort of minor Hardys, like Two on a Tower and The Hand of Ethelbert. I just read my way through the whole lot, clearly not understanding very much, but I thought, you know, Pride and Prejudice was a great romance. And, you know, yeah. and then I'd sort of reread them every few years. And the other ma- major reason why I read so much is that I was a very, very bad student at school mm. and I never did my work and I would pretend to be doing my homework, but I would have a novel under my desk. <laughs> and my mm. parents came in, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd shove it away. So I, I basically didn't do my schoolwork and did reading. And I think what I was doing was preparing for the rest of my life. I obviously didn't know that then. Yes. Um, but it did mean that I failed to get into university because I was such a bad student and I ended up going to a technical college, Cambridge Tech, and I did a degree there when I did a secretarial course first and then found that you could do degrees. And again, I was a pretty lazy student. So I read when my university years, particularly discovering the American writers, Philip Roth and Saul Bellow and, and so mm. on. And before that, When I was at school, the exciting writers for me were all the women who were writing at the time, like Margaret Drabble, Nell Dunn, Ail Barker. And it was so exciting to me that women were writing about their ordinary lives and that you could write Mm. about anything. And it was an absolute revelation. So they were the most exciting books that I was reading up until college time. Yes, (laughs) I think that a particularly wonderful thing about when I speak to anyone uh, you know, whether that's writers or editors or anyone within the, you know, within the industry is um, it doesn't sort of matter what their sort of trajectory was. You know, it's that love of reading that really is the key or the, you know, the love of good storytelling or however you want to say it, that is the kind of the key, key element there. And in terms of, yeah, in terms of being a bad student, I can absolutely empathise with that because um, I, I had an author once say to me and I, I think this sums me up as well, is they had all the enthusiasm of a well-achieving student, but none of the ability. And I think I think that certainly sums up my, you know, 
you know, always enthusiastic, but not a particularly good student. But when it came to reading, that was, yeah, that was a, a really, a really important element. And so, of course, you know, bringing us through to uh, today, you've both have, you know, well-established careers within the publishing industry. And what I want to ask now is actually the last book that you read that's really sort of stood out for you or really spoken to you, uh, starting uh, starting with you, Liz, something that you've read recently that you've, you've particularly enjoyed. Yes, well, um, the last book I, I read just very recently is a book that I, I actually was given by the author some years ago, probably about 10 years ago. It's by a, a guy who is probably one of the leading contemporary novelists in Spain. His name is Enrique Villamatas, and the book is called Bartleby and, and Co. It's a book that came to me uh, actually from various writers who absolutely love it, and it is a, entirely a writer's book. It's wickedly funny, dry, droll. It's, uh, it, the, the hero is a, a clerk in Barcelona, and he, he, he uses the, uh, the idea of, what, of somebody who is a Bartleby, which uh, came up in a short story by Herman Melville. And Bartleby and Co. is the title. He calls himself a Bartleby, and a Bartleby is a writer who does not write. <laughs> uh, and what, what the Bartleby says is when questioned, uh, he says, I prefer not to. <laughs> okay, so I prefer not to is a kind of leap light movie that goes through the novel. Right. And there's a parade of light Bartleby's in literature, including starting at Rambo, Socrates, Kafka, Gide, Wittgenstein, Balzac, Flaubert, Flaubert, all of these writers are what they what he calls writers of the no, N-O. <laughs> so uh, so it, it it's a strange and but he he sustains the idea and the joke and it's completely mesmerizing. It's very very funny, stimulating and and uh, yeah it it's just so humorous, so elegant. It's very. It's not a long novel. It's it's only 160 pages, I think. But honestly, it's it it just takes you into a completely set frame of mind. And, yes. And, and uh, I met him when when he came to the uh, festival that we have in Brazil, and he signed this book for me. Uh, and I can't read what he wrote, but it, it, he did a lovely portrait of himself. Um, oh, lovely! I don't know if you can see it. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's a really nice. I only just picked it up and read it for the first time the other day, and uh, I'm very glad I did. (laughs) Very much. Yes, I love the um, yes, the hat and the sort of the cloak. uh, Frame for um, for uh, for for our listeners, for our listeners who unfortunately can't see this, but yes, a lovely sort of yeah, uh, a a trilby. Would you say a trilby hat with a? And then the the signature is yeah within that I think that's lovely. Within the, within, I think he's wearing a cape as well. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's nice <laughs> when a, a signature is um you know some authors yeah I've seen some lovely you know illustrations or you know that they add something to the signature I think it always makes it a yeah. bit a bit special Bartleby and Co. Yes. Yeah. Was was that one of those cases then? Because you said so it was ten years ago that you you were given this book, but it's it's just now that. Yes. Well, it yes. was. When the when when uh, Villa Matas came to Brazil and mm. uh, I got the book then and just put it on one side and then just picked it up. Yes, yeah, I think that's something any any reader can empathise with is is having yeah. books for some time. I always say to customers in the shop, you know, when they say, "Oh, but you know, I've already got a to read pile that is quite tall," I you know, I say, I think sometimes a book sort of tells you when it's time to read it you can have it for some time but eventually yeah. you know it will you will look at it and you'll think now's the now's the time to read it um yeah. yes because of course you you lived in brazil for a while is that yeah yes, correct right. saying that liz yes yeah, yeah. and yeah. you're involved in um or, you, or, or i believe you set up uh, a literary festival there is it, again is that yeah. correct yes that's right yes 
I lived in Brazil in the 60s when I was out there uh, not not working. I was uh, I had two very young children at the time mm. and uh, my my then husband uh, was sent there by his business. So, you know, we had four years there mm. and, and uh, I, I absolutely loved it. It, it. it felt like home suddenly. I felt more at yes. home than I have in many other places. But but the books, but reading, uh, and, and and there was very little. Um, of course, my my Portuguese wasn't all that great, so I wasn't able to read a lot of Brazilian. But we set up the the, the um, festival in a little fishing village. Well, Alexandra's been down there, and it's a very very charming uh, fishing village. And this is this year. It will be the twenty twenty second anniversary of it starting, and uh, they had a couple of years with no, of course, because of the pandemic, no yes. live. So we're going back in November for the first live festival again. Oh, very year. exciting! Yes, yeah. yeah, it's 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 been nice to see. That's been a common thread over the past year. Is you know. Yeah. Uh, in in person events that you know haven't been able to happen over the next couple yeah. of years, starting yeah. up again, and it's really I don't know it um it, it it puts a nice energy in the air. There's something about you know doing these things in person that you just can't you know you you can't emulate over Zoom or you know digitally. Yeah. You know it's a it's a That's very a, personal thing. Yeah. And so Alexandra, um, a recent book moving over to you that has you know really spoken to you or you or, or you particularly enjoyed or, or, or engaged with well it's actually the most recent book I, obviously I read manuscripts all the time mm. so it's quite rare to get to read books but I did read Meg Rosoff's new book which is actually published as a YA book I never really understand what the about those categories and I yes, loved yeah. her last novel The Great Garden and grabbed a proof of this because Bloomsbury published it on the children's side yeah um and it's um it's I think it's it's only just been published and I absolutely loved it and it's a novel about friendship it's called Friends Like These and it's set in New York in the 1980s at these 18-year-old girls who are interns in a newspaper in New York, obviously mm. a very prestigious newspaper. You think it's probably the, the New York Times. And yeah. it's one incredibly meltingly, burningly hot summer with these girls sort of on the loose for the first time in their lives. And our heroine moves in. She's in a cockroach-infested apartment with very dodgy flatmates. And then one of the other interns comes from a very wealthy background and she moves into her apartment. And it turns out that that friend is incredibly manipulative and it's quite a toxic relationship. So it all unfolds over that summer. Right. And I love novels that are sort of coming-of-age novels, mm. bohemian girls stories, and, you know, we all love watching The Devil Wears Prada because it reminds us of our first jobs. And mine was working at Virago Press in the 1970s. Oh, okay. And uh, my boss, Carmen Khalil, was very like Meryl Streep in The Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> and um, so I watch it to sort of remind myself of those days. And I published a wonderful memoir called My Salinger Days by Joanna Rakoff, which is about working for a literary agency in New York and dealing mm. with J.D. Salinger. And that was made into a film recently as well. But there also, there's a whole sort of tradition of these kind of bohemian girl stories um, mm. that I've always loved from The Constant Nymph that was published in the 20s, I Capture the Castle, The mm. Dud Avocado, and Barbara Tupido's amazing brother, the more famous Jack, which we've just reissued as a 40th anniversary edition. And Meg is in totally in that tradition. Mm. Um, and uh, she does it wonderfully. And she's funny and acute and sharp and just gets those young women so well. It's interesting, as you say, with the with the categorization of, you know, of a uh... Of, you know, something like YA, I think, you know, as we say to people coming into the shop, you know, we have these categories, you know, that they can be quite useful for navigating all the wonderful books that come out. But um, sometimes, you know, they can, it, it's also nice to say to readers, actually, you know, ignore the categories. If yes. it speaks to you, if you read the back or, you know, 
and you feel this is a story for me, then actually no label can take that away. No, I mean, for me, Meg Rosoff is as much for a 69-year-old as it is for a 16-year-old. <laughs> You know? <laughs> and I and I would say that about the Dodd Avocado and the Constant mm. Imp, you know, those those yeah. books are eternal and for every age. Yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, I saw that uh, friends like these had a very good review recently as well. Didn't mm. they? I think had the reviews been written, I thought it sounded absolutely marvellous. Yeah, I'll send you a copy. I'll I'll oh. I'll send one to you. <laughs> Thank you. Read it. <laughs> And actually, the one before the Great Garden is set in Suffolk because she she lives in Suffolk, and it's yes. about a summer in Suffolk. So, ah, and I love, love it. Love it. Mm. It's absolutely yeah. wonderful. Wonderful. Now, the next question I personally think is very cruel, and if anybody asks me this question, um, I would I would struggle with it because the one that we have is the book that changed your life. Now, I'm sure as both of you have published so many people, you must have read so many manuscripts, come across so many books during your time, you know, in the industry, but also just to, just as readers as well. I'm sure that's very tricky. So I think maybe it might be good to sort of narrow that down, although I know that doesn't narrow it down too much to both of your times at Bloomsbury. Ah, well, yes, I was going to answer the original question by saying, the book that did literally change my life was The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan, because that told me that I wasn't going to be filling my life with being a mother of two little ones and that I could have a bit more of a life of my own. And that she really, that book really inspired me. Mm. Uh, when I come to Bloomsbury, it's very hard to, to choose. There, was, mm. there were a lot of books during that time that meant an enormous amount to me. It was very exciting to uh, set up and start a list from scratch. Um, mm. And we had a tremendous sort of um, group of us starting out, all, you know, working together. It was a, it was a yes. very exciting few, few years. But I suppose of, you know, off the top of my head, the book that comes into, into it, uh, to answer your question is The English Patient by Michael Ondaatje. It was partly that it galvanised Bloomsbury. When that book came in, it was on offer. It wasn't a big wide auction. It was on offer to four publishers, of which whom Bloomsbury was one. I think Secker was another, Faber was another, and Cape was another. And we... We had to give one offer. It wasn't an auction. We just had to make an offer. Uh, the whole company, which probably consisted of no more than about 15 people or 20 people <laughs> at, that, at that point, uh, read the book. Everybody fed into the, uh, to the response. Uh, we had a, a very, I think, uh, imaginative and, and thoughtful and Obviously, winning promotion campaign mm. that, that the whole company contributed to, and it was uh, it, we were allowed to make one bid, and I think uh, most of us made the same bid as far as I've been able to find out. Ah, okay. The money wasn't an issue, so it was the the campaign, the enthusiasm, the imagination that had yes. gone, in. and so we were utterly and completely thrilled when when Bloomsbury was given that the, the great pleasure and honour of publishing mm. Michael Ondaatje's wonderful book. And everything seemed to happen and go right with that book. You know, it, it um, people loved it, the reviews everywhere, uh, mm. all over the world, really. And, um, and then the film, and, you know, it went on and on and on for yes. years. And, and it, it was a very, very special time and a special book and uh, one that, um, yeah, I, I, I won't ever forget. And uh, Alexandra, I, I, yes, yeah, sorry, I, I realise I've, you know, I've rather cruelly sort of 
changed the goalpost. You have, yes. yes. Sorry, what was your original answer to that that question? So my original answer was the book Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe. And I was, when I was a child, my father went to West Africa every summer. He used to work for the West African Examination Syndicate and he'd bring back suitcases full of indigo dyed batik and Mm. uh, jewelry and dolls and things. And then one year he came back with this book and I think I was 13 or something and he gave it to me to read. And I was absolutely transformed and transfixed by it because it was as if when I read the book, the whole world shifted on its axis and I remember the incredible scene when a white man rides into this African, this Nigerian village on a bicycle and walks off and they think it's a horse and they tether it to the tree. And it was that thing of seeing the world in an entirely different way. And mm. I think it's informed everything about the way that I published really. Mm. Um, it's, um, you know, I think that one of the early writers I took on was Abdul Razak Gurna, who won the Nobel Prize last year. And yeah. reading By the Sea took me back to Achebe, you know, publishing his books over 20 years. So um, Chinua Achebe is like my God, really, from when mm-hmm. I was a child. So so that that was an absolutely transforming book for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, would you mind also as well answering the new question as well in terms of your, yes. you know, your relationship with Bloomsbury at well, I will try to. It's very, very hard to ask somebody to talk about one of their babies. Yes, yes, (laughs) absolutely. But so what I'll do is I'll talk about a book that I think means so much to me, profoundly means a great deal to me. And that's a novel by the Irish writer Colin McCann. It's his most recent novel called A Paragon. And uh, it's a novel that is about Palestine and Israel and two men who lost their daughters to the conflict, real men he knows. And it's Mm. telling their story, but he tells it through history and music and poetry. It's Mm. when he talked about writing it, because you cannot understand how you could write such a novel. It's so complex and it soars and it sings. And he said, it was like conducting. And I thought that was absolutely brilliant. It wasn't mm-hmm. like writing. It was like conducting. Um, and it means a great deal to me, first of all, because it's a great work of art, I think. But secondly, because I have been twice to Palestine because our author, Bloomsbury author, Adaf Suef, who worked with Liz originally and then with me when, when I took over, um, started the Palestine Literature Festival. And mm-hmm. I went on it with her twice. And And this festival, you're taken in a bus, a whole lot of writers, and you're taken through checkpoints and you take Mm. the right, the writers are taken to communities, refugee camps, cultural centers, universities, and you talk and meet people. And it's the most extraordinary experience. And everyone who's been on it is absolutely transformed. You never Mm. don't feel the same way about the world. And when I was there, Michael Palin was on it. You know, Richard Ford was on it when my son, Mm. I sent my son on it a few years later. Um, And uh, and I published an anthology of pieces from writers who'd been on it to celebrate 10 years of the of the of the festival. So Palestine and and uh, has always meant from that moment, have, from that first visit has meant a great deal to me. So mm. what Colm is writing about with humanity and love and understanding is extraordinary. And I gave it to a Jewish novelist who I work with, who's a very prominent person. And she read it and she said, I will never walk down a street in Jerusalem and feel the same way or look mm. the same way again. It's completely changed me. And I think that this is a novel that that will change people, does change people. Mm. And so it's both beautiful and very important. Yeah, absolutely agree about that. It's a wonderful book. And a trend I see with, you know, both of your answers and, and reading your your parts in the Bloomsbury 35 book is, is you both seem to have quite an international outlook. And that seems like it was, you know, quite important to, and still is to, to Bloomsbury. Uh, Liz, um, obviously, you've, you know, lived in in several different countries. And Alexandra, I think it was in your excerpt that you say that, you know, 
uh, from that, you know, introduction to things fall apart that, you know, there's always been an interest in not just kind of English writing, but the stories that are being told globally. That feels like it's been important to you both. Mm-hmm. Very important. And I, I'm I'm really proud of the fact that Bloomsbury has, from the very beginning, been such an international publisher mm-hmm. and has uh, published from really all over the world. Mm. You know, it's 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 something that I think you and I did quite naturally, don't you, Liz? Yes, it, did it. it didn't really stop to think about it, but but it has been always something that I particularly like books that take you somewhere completely new and different, and mm. and and it, and immerse. You can immerse, be immersed in in those spaces. And I mean, I suppose the one that, that influenced me most of, of, that I've had um, experience of, of publishing was was uh, Salman Rushdie's *Midnight's Children*, mm. when I, long before Bloomsbury. Uh, but that book, you know, that really did open my eyes to to, to India and all the, the, the amazing uh, world that he he exposes in that book and the. Other book uh, that I was going to mention about uh, in answer to the book that everyone should read is is a book by that Bloomsbury did publish called The Ventriloquist Tale uh, by Pauline Melville, which again takes us to British Guyana, you know, an area of of South America, not all that much well known outside and again you know so vivid in its, its description and and it's she she really is uh hugely talented and mm. if only she would write more uh, <laughs> two or three books of short stories two novels but the ventriloquist tale does the one that i i really think could go up there alongside uh, the Abdel Gurna and the uh, Salman Rushdie's mm. of the world that we can, you know, identify, um, taking you to and inside the these places that you know you may never go to, but yes, you really can be immersed in the, in the life there and the characters and the people mm. and. The, and everything about it. Um, and Pauline, whose career started in, in the theatre, and she, oh, okay. she and in on film. I mean, she did a lot of television and film. She was in so many uh, well-known films. I haven't got them on the, on the, in my head, but uh, that she, and I think it was her ability to enter into the, the imaginative ability to enter into the lives of others as an actor, that then she was able to put into her fiction writing, which, oh. which um, you know, be, she only began quite late in her life. Yes. But immensely, immensely gifted. And it, it must be, um, to, you know, to whether just as a reader or more a personal relationship as their their editor, it, you know, it, it mm. sounds like, you know, these relationships with, you know, writers are so, you know, such an important part of the job. One moment uh, that really stood out to me in the Bloomsbury 35 is Alexandra, when you talk about learning that Abdul Razak Gurna won the Nobel, that, you know, you had been publishing him for so long that it was like a, you know, a, re- a genuine emotional experience, you know, because of uh, over a period of that time, you know, they must be friends, really as well as, you know, writers that you're, you're publishing. Yes, they're, they're relationships that, that go on over many decades and they're so much more than a business relationship and you feel, you know, deeply committed and, um, and also incredibly fond of, of the writers that you work with mm. for, for, for that length of time. And in the case of Abdul Razak, I was also, I was feeling quite sad because Afterlives, which is one of his... I mean, all his books are marvellous, but mm. Afterlives, I thought, was one of his greatest. And it wasn't listed for the Booker Prize or right. any other prize. And I was deeply disappointed. And Black Lives Matters had just happened. And the chair of the Booker was a very distinguished um, Black pop, pop woman publisher. And I thought, 
this is going to be his moment. I really believe yes. that it would yes. happen, you know, and it didn't. And then months passed and there was a big article in The Guardian, which was with the headline, Reinventing the Canon of Black Literature. And they were all black writers, Bernadine Evaristo and Ben Oakley and so on, choosing, the, you know, talking about the important lineage of black writing. There was not one mention of Abdul Razak's name. Uh. And I, I, at that moment, lost it on social media and wrote on Facebook and on Twitter, <laughs> I can't bear this. And literally yes. four or five days later, he, he won. The, the prize was announced. You oh, can imagine. Wow. I just burst into floods well, of tears. Yeah. Floods <laughs> of tears. I couldn't when we published Afterlives, there was only one other edition in the world, and that was a Turkish edition. No oh, others. Wow. There are now 45 Oh, different fantastic. languages publishing that book and and his backlist. Yes, you know, I mean, it just changed everything, yes. everything in that that moment. Amazing, amazing. It, well, I, you really do deserve a great deal of congratulation because just to stick with it and also over all that time and all those books, which got such miserable <laughs> response. Um, well, he would always get nice review. He would always yeah. get good reviews. You know, he was because he was respected by other writers. But it Very was that yeah. the prizes took no notice of him. Mm. You know, killed me. Anyway, it all came Mysterious. out in the wash. It all came out in the <laughs> well, I think it's. A, it sounds like you know, it's a real. I can imagine for people outside, you know, listening to this, who don't know, I don't know the industry, that maybe they would think it was even quite. Uh, not emotionless, but you know that you, you they give their book in, you know it gets edited, it goes yeah. out. But the amount of passion and you know that's out there is certainly for me interviewing people from you know across the industry is so yes. palpable. It's so emotional, and that what people don't realize because people think of your successes because that's the sort of obvious things, you yes. know, the, the the books that work. But they don't know all the heartbreaks, <laughs> all the failures, because it's particularly with fiction, it's so hard to make it work. Mm. And you could publish a novel that is absolutely superb and it can sink. And, mm. you know, we all do our best, but you can't make them work. You can't actually physically make it work. Do you know what I mean? And so there's a lot of there's a lot of heartache as well as joy. Yes. <laughs> And it, it sounds like as well, you know, with the with the creating of this um of the Bloomsbury 35 anthology, that uh, again a theme from both of your sort of segments is the difficulty in trying to sum up, you know, those 35 years, you know, with a, a limited list of you know writers when the pool to pick from must have been, you know, hundreds, if not more, of, of brilliant writers. And to, you know, to narrow that list down is, a, a, I must say, an unenviable task, I feel. Liz, did you, did you find for your time there, picking a list of, of writers for the book, that, that was tricky? Yes. Well, I mean, <laughs> the book, if, if I'd had, you know, had my, my ideal uh, circumstance, it would be, the book would be, uh, you know, Three times the size, <laughs> yes. And, Several volumes, impossibly. <laughs> you know, yes, in many volumes. Uh, yes, you can't. It's it's like you know, picking and choosing your babies. I mean, mm. you, can't, you can't really. It's very difficult to do that. Um, and I I made the point of you know several people that I I I, I find it impossible to accept that they were not included and yes yeah they'll find it the same way uh, when they see it. it's very very hard um mm. but obviously there were constraints of length and uh so we had to be uh, you know fairly rigorous um mm. uh and i suppose trying to select one what I hoped for this, uh, and I don't know if Bloomsbury is is prepared for this, but if this book really uh, brings to notion, to attention some books which haven't been noticed for the last twenty years, mm. you know they'll be putting in some reprints because 
one really uh, that is the trouble that the, the, the life of a of a novel is is perilously short. Really, mm-hmm. I mean, there's the there's publication, there's and then there's a gap, and there's a, you know, reviews and so on, and then there's the paperback, and then there's reviews, more reviews, and then what happens? You know, and that's why for me, you know, bringing back into focus at least in a small way. And maybe this will help. Something like the ventriloquist tale by Pauline Melville, which you know was published quite a long time ago, but should I think be in print and selling again. That's what I would like to see happen. I yes. don't know if we can uh, take that up. <laughs> <laughs> they'll be cursing me. <laughs> <laughs> On hearing this, they'll, um, yes, yeah. And you, again, we see that, you know, quite often in the shop, you know, books that people have really loved and they come in and they think, oh, actually, I I was telling a friend about this great book I read all, you know, years ago. And then you sort of have to be the one to break the news yeah. to them. Or, you know, currently it's out of print. You know, yeah. there's secondhand copies out there. Yeah. And, you know, they, they understandably look dumbfounded because, you know, when a book's <laughs> spoken to you that much and you've yeah. thought, well, this is a brilliant piece of fiction. For, you know, for some uh, bookseller to turn around and say, oh, you know, it's not out of print. Understandably that, you know, there's sometimes, oh, well, you know, are you sure? And there's, you know, there's a bit of back and forth to really convince them because, you know, understandably they think, oh, surely not. You know, it, it must it must still be still be out there. But some sometimes extraordinary things happen, like with Madeleine Miller's The Song of Achilles. Mm. We published that mm. ten, 10 years ago. And last year, it went to number one in the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah. You know, and we sold just before Christmas a million copies. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) And that is because uh, teenagers, it's Mm. school children, have discovered it. And they talk about it on TikTok. And it's like a virus. I mean, it's Mm. absolutely incredible. Mm. So that's the the amazing moment, you Mm. know, is when... Out of the blue, an extraordinary thing happens with a book that you thought has had its life and mm. had a very good life, lovely life. It won the Women's Prize. But this thing that's happened in the last two years is beyond. Amazing. Yeah, completely astonishing, isn't it? <laughs> oh, the power of TikTok is, you know, I, I think booksellers are, are tapping into it. You see now things like TikTok tables, you know, in bookshops, yeah. books recommended on TikTok. But I, I think... I think there's still a lot to be, I mean, maybe not explored, maybe as you say, you know, you, you call it a sort of a virus because it does feel organic. So, you know, it, 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 it's all well and good saying, you know, oh, it's worth exploring, but actually I feel part of its joy is it's, yeah, organic. I agree. I agree. Why can't we just let them get on with it? Yes, yeah, yes. Find their books and do their thing, you know, and, and hope for the best. And it's a good example of when we were talking about, you know, labels earlier of books of YA or things like that. Yeah. You know, what's been really exciting about TikTok is you will have, you know, children coming in and they're picking books that for us are on, you know, just the general fiction shelf. Yeah. You know, and I, I think that's very exciting because, that you know, one thing we really notice is um, we had someone in the shop uh, doing a sort of work experience. But, but I mean, that's the wrong word for it because she works for... Um, uh, well, book day, uh, and uh, you know, she was saying the one thing that they've uh, that they've noticed in studies that trumps things like class, even race, is that if children are allowed to select, or anyone is allowed to select the book that they want to read, you know, it doesn't matter what category it's from, whether it's too young for them or too old, that that is what encourages reading and will bring them. And you know, there's there's potential limitations to that, but. I think, you know, it's um, that's a great example of, you know, uh, younger people discovering these books for themselves. Yes. And, yes, um, as we did. I mean, yes, yeah. you know, surely yeah. we, you know, we, as I said, I was reading Jane Austen when I was 11. It's, yeah. I think these these categories are so confining. And in fact, the book that I had chosen as the book that everyone should read is Carmen Shams's new novel. It's not actually going to be published till September. Yes, but yeah. That's that's called Best of Friends, and it's mm. and it begins in Karachi in the 1980s with these teenage girls and their friendship and their relationship, and then it goes later to London when they're they're women in their 40s and they're very distinguished, and mm. it's rather like the Meg Rosoff actually. I think I obviously like 
books about friendships as well. It's, you know, it's about what happens to their friendship and about long friendships. And I think this is a novel that teenagers would love to read, mm. you know, just as they love to read The Song of Achilles. You know, it's it's a book that reveals so much to them. And mm. it's so good about teenage life and and what these girls are like together. And Carmela set out to write it because she was so interested in how friendships that you have from when you're very little are different from friendships you have as an adult, Mm -hmm. because those friendships you choose and you don't choose the ones from when you're very, very small. But the bonds can be incredibly deep Mm -hmm. and strong. And she explores that so well. So I know that that's a book that teenage girls would like to read. Yeah. But my, my relationship with Carmela is also an extraordinary friendship because when I met her, she was um, 21 and she was a student in a university in upstate New York. And I was doing a creative writing workshop and there was just one good story in these terrible pile of stories about a little boy flying a kite in Pakistan. And I just heaped praise and talked about that story. And this very shy girl came up to me afterwards and said, uh, who'd written it and said, I think you published my great aunt. And it this was Carmela. And I had published a great aunt who was a very important Indian writer called Atiyah Hussain, who only ever wrote two books, a novel and some stories. But both Vikram Sait and Saman Rushdie have said that she was the mother of the Indian novel written in English. And I'd republished them at Virago with introductions by Anita Desai. So I, I was an agent at the time and I gave Carmela my card and I said, I think there's a longer narrative behind this story. And if you'd like to explore that, keep in touch with me. So we worked for 18 months on it, and then I sold it to Grant Books. And then she came with me to Bloomsbury. So we've been together since, since then. You know? Yes. Again, these, you know, these, yeah, these long-standing um, relationships. I feel, unfortunately, I, I could keep talking uh, about books um, forever, but that has brought us to the end of our time. I want to thank you both so much for joining us here at Mostly Books Meets. And yes, I must say for our listeners out there, the Bloomsbury 35 anthology is out now. Uh, it came out in May. It will be available from all good bookshops, including um, including Mostly Books. Alexandra, Liz, thank you so much for joining us at Mostly Books Meets. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.